Hello, welcome everyone. Thank you for coming to our talk today on red team versus blue team on AWS. This is Colby Allen, and my name is Terry Rudeckel. We used to work together, but we don't anymore, but we still run the Seattle AWS Architects and Engineers Meetup. We have about 2,500 members in this meetup, and we're celebrating our fifth year anniversary in January, so if you happen to be in Seattle in January, come hang out with us and help us celebrate that. So we come to you today with diverse experience. I have about 25 years of software development, architecture, and engineering experience, as well as security experience, and um, I've done a number of different things in the realm of software architecture, including financial systems for Capital One, back office systems for Nordstrom, uh, architected a SaaS IoT solution. Those are just some examples of some software development experience I have. I also have a number of security certifications. If any of you are familiar with the SANS GXPN, it's an advanced pen testing certification. I actually just got this last week. It's very challenging. Um, but I don't just have certifications. I have real-world experience in security. And it started when I ran my own company uh, prior to the one I run now was a software consulting business. And I would have security breaches and incidents. And I didn't have anyone to help me. I had to just figure it out. I didn't know what to do sometimes. I had to figure out how the malware got on my systems and solve those problems. So now what I really like to do is help other people with their security. So the past few years have been focusing primarily on cloud security. I really got into this because I looked at the cloud and based on my experiences, I thought, well, some people could be more secure in the cloud, potentially. But you have to configure things correctly. If you don't configure things correctly, you could have problems. And that's what we're gonna talk to you about here today. Uh, so now I run my own software consulting business, uh, sorry, cloud security consulting business called Second Sight Lab, and I help people with cloud security consulting, training, and pen testing. This past year I was teaching for SANS Institute, and I still have some good friends that uh, teach there, some of them in the cloud, we taught the cloud security architecture and operations class, but next year I'm teaching my own classes, running my own classes that are gonna be a little bit different, and they're really geared at helping developers and security people work together better, like we're doing here on stage today. So I'm Colby, so as Terry said, we've known each other for about four years, and we run the community group together and have worked together. Um, I actually started life as a physical chemist, um, and so I started in chemistry, got really tired of chemistry, and so liked the technology side of it and went into consulting. Started using AWS and got passionate about that and was able to move through a few different jobs. Currently I work at ZipWhip, um, so we're a startup based out of Seattle. We provide landline and toll-free texting services um, for businesses to be able to communicate with their customers. Um, and as Terry said, you know, this talk is just kind of going to be about things that we've learned and done over the years um, with building stuff on Amazon. Okay, so as we said, we're going to talk to you about red team versus blue team on AWS. And if you're not familiar with those terms, the red team is a team that usually works inside of a company and simulates tax attacks on company systems and tries to find ways to break in and traverse the network and find security gaps and holes. And that team helps the blue team, who is the defensive team, the team that sets up the defenses, the security controls on the network and on the applications and tries to defend the environment. And there's a saying that offense informs defense. So the offensive team is going to attack the systems and be based on what they find, the blue team is going to make adjustments to secure the environment. You may have also heard 
the term pen testing. And just to get this out of the way, penetration testing or pen testing is usually done by an external company that comes in and tests the environment. Sometimes this is required for PCI compliance or otherwise. And um, some people debate what these terms mean. For our purposes today, we're kind of just talking about an attacker versus a defender. And so for today, I am going to be the stealthy ninja on the screen. I'm going to go into the account, and I'm going to try to attack it and see if I can get through and steal some of your data. And Colby's going to be Superman. He's going to come in and save the day. He's going to show you how to fix the problems that I find. So let's just get this out of the way. Whenever you're doing standard pen testing, one of the goals when the on-premises environment is to get domain admin. And what this means is the ultimate achievement of a pen tester is to get administrative credentials on, of the domain administrator. Because what does that mean? That means I can go in, I can create myself accounts, I can basically give myself permission to anyone, anything in your environment and do whatever I want. So in the cloud, we're calling this cloud admin. And if you get cloud administrator credentials and you've given your cloud administrator full credentials to everything in your account, I want to get those credentials because then I can do anything I want in your account. But if I was able to do that, this would be a really boring talk because it's pretty much game over, right? And there's actually a company that faced this problem you may have heard of called Codespaces. And I like to say it's the company that got deleted because what happened was an attacker got their credentials, demanded some money, said, give me some money or I'm going to do bad things in your account, and they said no. And so then the attacker proceeded to delete everything they had in their account. They hosted code and files for other companies and all their customers' data was deleted and they went out of business. So instead of talking about that, we want to do something a little more interesting. We're going to go on a treasure hunt. We're going to search for buried treasure. So your data is like your treasure. It's like your gold, right? It's the thing that you're trying to protect in your account. It's what's really valuable to you. Most of the time, this is the goal of attackers to go in and get some data and steal it, as you've seen in many of the security breaches that have been in the news recently. And in order to attack your account and get this data, I'm not going to use standard pen testing tools. You may have heard of Metasploit or PowerShell Empire. And there's actually, uh, I have some friends that work for Rhino Security up in Seattle, and they created a cool tool um, called Paku. And I like to say it's the Metasploit of AWS, right? It has functions you can use to try to get into the account. But we're going to use a different methodology. It's called living off the land. What this means is I'm not going to use any tools other than the ones that are already existing in your account. The things that your developers and your DevOps people are using, I'm going to use those tools and leverage them to traverse and get through your account and your network and figure out how I can get out at your data and steal it. So before we dive in, we're going to kind of go over some background of how we set things up. So we treated this as if we had our manager ask us to go start deploying stuff on AWS. We spun up a brand new AWS account. We had a single user made, base VPC, and default. So we left it as vanilla as possible. We then realized, well, we want to deploy some type of web application. So we searched for some tutorials. We found an Elastic Beanstalk tutorial with WordPress. We followed that tutorial all the way through. So this is on Amazon's website. And then also, because serverless is fun and new, we decided to do something with serverless. And we have databases, so why not serverless and databases? So we looked up a tutorial on using Lambda with a relational database service, so RDS. 
and running that inside of your uh, VPC. And so again, we just followed that tutorial exactly for how it was written and didn't do anything extra with the account. Okay, so in this case, let's say that you were trying to be secure and you set up some users, but you did not give them full administrative access. You gave them read-only credentials. I want to get a hold of some of those credentials and see what I can do with them. And even though they're read-only, they may be able to help me out. So you may know this, but the credentials, when you use uh, Amazon credentials, are stored in a file on a laptop, and they're in plain text. And so if I can get onto someone's laptop, I can grab those credentials and start using them. Um, there's a number of different ways. Again, this is kind of outside the realm what we're talking about here today, but standard pen testing techniques for getting in there and getting those credentials. Uh, I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, I could send your developer a phishing email, say free ticket to reInvent or something, you know? And then I could go in there and I could try to get them to click on that email and grab those credentials by some sort of malware. I could also set up a drive-by download site. I could try to trick them into going to my site and, and getting some malware in their machine that way. Or I could just be really nice and try to use some social engineering and say, can I borrow your keys? Um, there's a number of different ways that you can get at credentials on a machine. So let's say I got those credentials. What can I do with them? So the first thing I want to do is I want to know where your data is, and I want to know where your important data is. Now, I've worked for a lot of financial organizations, and I've worked with a lot of PII data or, you know, protected data that you don't want someone to get at, and I know that a lot of times this type of data is short, stored in a database as transactional or a relational database, and um, typically this is where I'm gonna find data like that, so I'm gonna start there. And using those credentials that are just read-only, I can run this query here, and I can say show me all of the RDS databases in this account. And then I can look at the information about those databases, the metadata, and I can try to figure out which one I want to attack. In this case, Colby was really nice, and he named one of the databases the super secret DB. So let's see what's in that one. So what are the controls that I have to get through to get to this database? There's a few of them. Um, there are some network controls. The first thing I have to get through is the network access control lists that are associated with subnets that, that this database is located in. So what I can do is I can query the subnets associated with this database, and I find two. And I can look at those, and I can use that subnet ID to go examine the network access control lists. The network access control lists are going to define the traffic that is allowed in or out of the subnet in which these databa this database resides. So as you can see here, we have a series of rules, and in the case of a network access control list, the first rule that it matches will apply. We have some ingress rules and we have some egress rules, meaning inbound and outbound. And in both cases, the first rule allows CIDR block 0.0.0.0/0, which means anywhere on the internet, on any protocol to get into the subnet. So this is a default that comes with subnets on AWS, and if you have a developer deploying their code and their resources, they may just go with the defaults. Um, and so in this case, I know that from here on out, I don't have to worry about those subnets or those network access control lists because they're wide open. Anything in this subnet can, that uh, is in the subnet can talk to this database. So the next thing I have to get through are the security groups, right? 
So now I have a, a um, database name and it's associated with a particular security group ID, so I can go get that from the database and I can plug it into this query right here and I can say, show me the information about the security group as associated with this database. And what I find here is that this security group allows access inbound on port 3306, which tells me it's probably MySQL, right? And I can see that it is anything in the CIDR block 1723100 slash 16 is allowed to talk to my database. Okay, so I need to figure out what is in that particular CIDR block that can talk to this database. So how can I use this information? Well, I can look for VPCs and subnets maybe that are assigned to this particular CIDR block to try to figure out, um, and lucky for me, I do query the VPCs and I use the CIDR block as you can see here, and I find out that the entire VPC is allowed to talk to my database on 3306, anything in this database. Okay, so now what I wanna do is I wanna find out, okay, I know anything can talk to this database, but the, the thing that is talking to this database needs outbound access on port 3306. So let me see if I can figure out what is talking to this database that might help me. And I can look here and query on port 3306 outbound in this VPC, and I find another security group. So probably what's in this security group has permission to talk to this database. All right, so I know there's probably likely some compute resource, maybe Lambda or Fargate or maybe an EC2 instance, so I'm gonna query those, and I'm gonna see if any of them are using the security group, and of course I find one here. This is a Lambda function. It's named create table records and read, and it's based off of that tutorial that Colby showed you. And here's where it gets interesting. So when we were first playing around with this, trying to figure out what, what we we're gonna show you and what we we're gonna attack, I did a query of the Lambda function. You can use this function called get function, and it'll give you a whole bunch of information. And one of the values in there is called code.location. And this gives you back a URL. And what I noticed was when I went to this URL, I didn't have to have you know, any um, credentials, I wasn't logged into my account and I could get to it. I also sent it to Colby, I texted over to him to see if he could get to it and he could. And so this is a time-based URL, you don't even need credentials um, in the account to see this. And this is by design, it's how it works. Um, so if I can get access and read this information, uh, then I can use this URL to go. And what does it show me? It shows me the code, for the Lambda function. And how is this useful? Well, there's a lot of ways, if I can see your code, there's a lot of ways it's useful. I can look for vulnerabilities or configuration problems, I can look for programming errors, but in this case, I see a file here called rds underscore config. Hmm, rds, what could be in this file? Oh, it's database username and password. Don't do this, it's really bad. <laughs> so, uh, you should never put your secrets in your code, right? because if someone gets at your code, they can get your secrets. Now I can use these credentials and I can log into this database, even though I only had read-only access. So how am I gonna do that? Well, if I try to use this Lambda function, it's gonna be a little tricky because this, these files, I don't really have access to them. I don't have right access to the account, so it's gonna be a little challenging. So I'm gonna think of another way to get in here. First of all, I, I need to get into an instance that has access to the internet. I need to find something I can attack and get in that way. So I can query your account, see all the EC2 instances that have a public IP or a public DNS name. And that might give me a clue as to what I can get into. 
And once I get in there, I can find some instances. Now I need to find out if these particular instances that I want to get into have access to our database. Now you may know this, but when you deploy a security group, if you don't specify any outbound rules by default, there will be a rule in that security group that says 0.0.0.0/0 on any port. That means that whatever resource you assign the security group to can talk outbound to anything else. So I'm going to hope that in this account you had some people that just use those default rules and set me up some security groups around some instance with some public internet access that I can use to get at this database. And sure enough, I found a whole list of security groups that have this default outbound rule. And one of them is associated with uh, one of those instances. And when I go to that instance, I find out, hey, this is a WordPress website. Great. How does that help me? Well, now what I'm going to do is we're going back into kind of the land of standard pen testing. And what a pen tester or a red teamer will do is they will scan your externally exposed assets, for example, in this case, a WordPress website, looking for vulnerabilities, looking for CVEs, looking for problems in the code that they can exploit. And what I can do is once I find one of these vulnerabilities, only takes one, then I can get it onto that system. I can upload my code. I can use those database credentials that I stole earlier. I can grab the data from the database. I can just publish it to a public web page, and then I can scrape it and steal it, right? And so this is what I may try to do. And so there are a number of ways that you can attack these systems. Um, I'll just give you an example. I, we did this talk at RSA, and I talked about how in a previous test I was able to get into a website that had a file upload field, and it was um, you know, not properly sanitized, so I could upload any code I wanted, and then I could uh, change the code. Um, and so, lo and behold, after that talk, there came a new CVE came out in WordPress that is related that says, hey, um, if you don't properly, or you had a control that was not properly sanitized that allowed someone to get in there and upload a file and change something on that WordPress website. So all I need to do is find any published known vulnerabilities that you haven't patched appropriately or any sort of code flaw to get into that website. So in summary, what have I done? I stole some keys. I did some recon on your environment to find out what was in there, what I might attack, what kind of resources were there, what I might leverage. Um, and then I found some database credentials. Cool, got those. I exploited a web server, and then that web server was allowed to, by you know, poor network programming rules, I was able to get at the database, get the data out, and then exfiltrate it from the environment. And so we have a number of problems here. We have you know, read-only permissions to the whole entire account. We have single-factor credentials, meaning no MFA, a wide-open network. We have secrets in code and more. And now, Colby's going to tell you how to fix it. So wow, I did a bad job. <laughs> so let's go through and talk about the, all the different ways we can leverage um, AWS tools to make it better. So, to begin with, everything I'm going to talk about is all built into AWS. I'm not going to use anything special. Uh, we're just going to go through and talk through some different tools. First thing is protecting credentials, right? Terry was able to get a set of creds. So you know, the biggest and easiest way to do this is user training. Protect your users. Teach your users how to identify phishing campaigns, how to handle credentials. They shouldn't be sharing them. Even if it's a read-only credential, as we just showed, they're powerful, and so you shouldn't be sharing those. Um, Password policies and rotation is important, right? So Terry was able to use those creds. I mean, we created those creds, and she used them over three months. 
You know, I never rotated them once. And so during those three months, she could have kept going back in and continued exfilling data from our account. Require MFA, right? There was no MFA here. So once Terry had those credentials, she had all the auth pieces. She, there was no extra piece needed. Require frequent re-auth, especially to sensitive parts of your application or your infrastructure so that those credentials are getting refreshed. And you know, I'll go through some examples of this. And then as you saw, I put creds in code. I followed a tutorial that told me to do that. You know, we need to protect against that. AWS has a tool that we can leverage in with Git called Git Secrets, which will go through and actually scan as a pre-commit hook for AWS credentials by default. Um, and you can actually write your own regexes because those are delightful to write. Um, and in integrate them yourself, right? So here's just an example, a Python script where we have you know, the Boto 3 session coming online. We have a set of creds in there. I go try to check in the file. It doesn't let me. So you can roll this out to your developers just as that final sanity check to make sure credentials aren't being uploaded to Git um, and you're protecting them there. So let's talk about IAM. So uh, this is how she made, you know, did the main compromise. So how can we protect about this? So, Again, I'm not going to do an IAM top 10 talk. I'm just going to go over a few points that you know, we've deemed important and methodologies that can help you do a bunch of things really easily um, that we've found useful. Um, but you know, there's a bunch of great IAM top 10 talks out there, and I recommend everybody to listen to them because they're all good. But the big thing that I'm going to focus on is going to be roles, least privilege, and segregation of duties. And I'm going to leverage roles to get me the last one for free. Okay. So I'm gonna create a user, and this user is gonna have the most minimum amount of permissions possible. Literally, they, they can manage themselves in IAM, that is it. You know, they can set an MFA token, they can't do anything else. And so we're gonna go through and set these permissions up. And so I'm gonna go through and show you this YAML to set this up. So we're gonna give them some permissions. You know, the first ones are just kind of some IAM console permissions. It's gonna allow the user to view enough information so they can get into IAM and actually see themselves. Uh, we're gonna let them get the password policy because we just said we're gonna set a password policy, so we gotta make sure they can get that and apply it. Um, and then again, we'll let them list all the users. You probably could refine that, but this will let them find themselves in the list pretty easily. So this one's pretty generic. This is just to kind of get the console to work. From there, we're gonna lock them down. So I'm gonna give them only a very small set of privileges. And it's literally just privileges to change their IAM account permission, or not their permissions, but just change their IAM account. Important thing is I'm not gonna let them change their permissions. Okay, so they can set their password, change their password, uh, SSH keys to use some of the code star tools and different things like this. But we're gonna use a special tag in IAM. So, you know, this is a cool feature. I don't know if anybody's using this, but we're gonna leverage this IAM tag that effectively when you log in, it pulls in your user information. So our team that's managing IAM only has to create one set of templates to apply to all users. Because when you log in, it assumes your identity. And so that's that AWS colon username. So we've limited who, you, know, who you can actually change. The next piece is we're gonna do some MFA stuff, okay? We're gonna let the user add MFA and we're only gonna let them add MFA, okay? We've decided, you know, for us, we found that we don't want them to delete it. So the problem is, is if you let them delete MFA, if someone were to compromise a set of credentials, they could go in and remove the MFA, and now you don't have it anymore. 
This also lets you separate your IAM and your user control team from the team that's actually using AWS. They have to initiate you know, a ticket with your IT or something like that to have the MFA removed. You have two parties there, some type of ticketing or tracking system in place. So it gives you some good practices on how to handle that. Okay? So this user is going to have, like I said, very little to no permissions at all beyond setting passwords and enrolling themselves. Then we're going to add one final role to the, or ability to the user, and that's the ability to assume set roles. Okay? And we're going to require some special things with this. So we're going to create a bunch of roles, and these roles are going to be very limited scope roles. Right? Your network admin, your you know, Kubernetes admin, what, you know, whatever tool, and scope these down. We're going to require MFA to assume these roles, so they're going to have to have a two-factor auth into this. And then we're also going to put some time constraints around these roles. So these you know, more sensitive roles are going to have a lot less time that they're going to be able to be assumed than some of the other ones. And so your user now comes in. They have this default set of credentials, the ones that Terry compromised, but they can't do anything you know, besides change the user's password. They're going to require MFA to assume any privilege. And so we've protected the roles there. We're going to leverage the secured uh, token system, so we're going to get back a temporary set of credentials that we can then use to do our action. But the important piece here is now is all those credentials are temporary. They all have some sort of expiration associated with that. So we can actually then define, you know, your network admin has 15 minutes of access, and then they have to re-auth, re-MFAN, and you're better protecting that network. And so you're able to require frequent re-auth a lot easier with this leveraging the MFA or integrating with any type of auth source that you want. So what does this actually look like? So here's the same commands Terry ran against the account. So I have my default set of credentials as a user. All I can do is manage myself. And I try to describe the RDS instances, and I get not, I can't access it. I don't have the rights. I created a secure read-only role that does let me read the account for a set amount of time. I assume it. The important thing, though, is I required MFA to assume that role. So I assume into it, I have my second factor of auth and can get into it. I'll get back a set of temporary credentials. The key there is they are temporary. We get back an expiration time on when those credentials are no longer valid. We then leverage those credentials, run the command, I get the things back. These credentials are going to expire. They no longer will work after a set amount of time. And then we have to re-auth. And so they're not just sitting around for months on end sitting there for someone to exploit. Once they're done, they're done. Okay. So that lets us go through and manage the credentials. We can also be proactive in monitoring these credentials. So I'm assuming everybody in the room who uses AWS uses CloudTrail. You should, because new accounts have it on by default now. So CloudTrail is going to monitor all of those API actions for us. And so we'll be able to see what all of our users are doing. Okay. We can monitor them all. The nice thing is like a lot of Amazon services, these go into some type of event stream. That event stream we can subscribe to and we can do stuff with it. And so we can create Lambda functions that watch for certain types of actions. And so we can actually respond back, whether that be paging, some type of on-call team, sending a Slack message, or actually doing some auto-remediation against it to fix itself so you're in real time responding. You can also build profiles of your users you know that your team shouldn't be deploying servers outside of work hours, you can program this into a lot of your functionality and see what's happening and taking place. You know, 
the attacker you know, is going to be doing stuff at different times, and you can slowly see what's going on there. This will also let you track users that have permissions to things they shouldn't have access to. It lets you track, you know, did you remove that user's ability to do certain actions once they change teams? Um, and so we have those there. But it's important that we can subscribe to this, and then we can get into that more real-time blue team type effect of responding to the events as they happen. Okay? So that's our IAM. The next is secrets. So I messed up really bad on secrets. I mean, she had them in plain text. So we're going to talk about secret management. Now, Amazon released AWS Secrets Manager. We're not going to talk about that. That tool is designed more for an RDS type application. It's a great tool. We're going to focus on EC2 parameter store for secrets. When using these, just look at which use case works better for you. In the example that we're using, this one works a little bit better for us. So EC2 parameter store is a secure location for us to store things, anything from key value stores to secrets. Um, it's all controlled access-wise by IAM, so we can manage who can access it and who can't, um, and so we can set things up. The nice thing is it also integrates tightly with KMS, so we can encrypt the data that sits inside of it, which is perfect for secrets. So what we can do is we can actually then also take it one step further, since it's IAM, and do segregation of duties. We can build roles that let database administrators seed credentials into the store, lets them encrypt it, but doesn't let them pull data out. We then can roll out instances that have roles attached to them that has the ability to pull credentials out and also decrypt it. And so we're able to this control that. And what's nice is we control it two levels, at the parameter store level, and then also the ability to leverage the KMS keys for encryption and decryption. And so we can actually protect the credentials uh, and know what's going on here. The other nice thing is because using IAM, all of the actions are tracked in CloudTrail, so we can watch what's happening. So if credentials are being seeded at weird times in the night when you know your DBAs aren't online or your IT you know, team isn't online doing that, you can respond accordingly. You can also track what instances are getting secrets out. So you can track and say, okay, well that instance no longer needs a secret. We need to adjust those IAM roles in order to make sure that instance really is acting under the most minimum amount of permissions possible for it to do its job. So again, just an example of what this looks like. So left side's the file Terry showed you, right? It's got the password in it. The right side is the new file, no password in it. And it's pretty minimal amount of work to get this set up. In Python, it's only three lines of code for us to set this up. So we just call into the parameter store. We can pull the data out, and you leverage it for our application and use it. And if we look at the AWS console, it's there. And based off your console access, you can either see or not see the credential. So what's also nice is for those people that are using IT teams to see, you know, store secrets, they have a console that they can go in and do this in. Since the encryption is managed by KMS, we get all the nice KMS features of key rotation in the back end you know, that come for free with that that we don't have to, to manage. So to do this is fairly minimal amount of work. It's not a lot of extra code. Um, and we're able to make this quick change, and now she no longer has the database secrets, especially with you know, us discovering you know, that Lambda link is public for a set amount of time you know, so people can't go in and download that. So now let's discuss some more of the monitoring side of things. So those are, those previous ones cover some of the proactive stuff we can do. Let's talk about more of the reactive stuff to do. So for monitoring, the big one that we can start leveraging is guard duty. So who in the room uses guard duty? Right? It's an awesome tool. It was released, I think, last year at reInvent. 
And so guard duty is going to analyze VPC flow logs, DNS logs, and your CloudTrail logs, and kind of build a profile on your account of actual usage, and then start alerting based off of anomalies outside of that regular usage. It also has a set of uh, heuristics programmed into it that it'll watch for, like brute force attempts and things like that. Um, it learns your account for the first 30 days, and then after there, it builds a profile. It's really interesting. So it learns your account for the first 30 days. So don't do what we did and set up an account and don't log into it for 30 days because on 31 days, guard duty lets you know that something's going on that's not right. So you have that. Again, for monitoring with guard duty, it's like all the rest of the tools. There's an event stream that you can subscribe to so you can watch the guard duty alerts come off and then do actions against those, whether that's just simple paging posting to Slack, or actually building some type of remediation process in order to handle the exploit. Other monitoring, as we talked about, is look at CloudTrail. VPC flow logs are a good tool to make sure you know where all of your traffic's going. Uh, you know, you should see profiles that look correct. AWS Config's an awesome tool to watch your account, watch and make sure no changes are taking place, and either roll back or alert you based off that. And then some non-AWS monitoring thing, you know, make sure you ship your logs, you're watching your logs, securely backing those logs up. They're gonna have information for you that you can work on. And then leverage any type of automated remediation as possible. So for those of you who haven't used Guard Duty, this is the Guard Duty console, just for everybody to see. So here's what's going on there. It builds these profiles and it, it shows a lot of really cool information. Um, it, you know, it, by default, it's going to track like SSH brute force attacks. So you actually get to see how many people are trying to get into your stuff. It really makes it a really good point for why you don't publicly expose SSH. Um, it'll help find if there's crypto mining type actions taking place in your account, which is a fun exploit if anybody's had their account compromised for that one. Um, they rack up bills real quick. And you can watch those things. Again, alert, black hole those instances for forensics later, or just delete them and get rid of them uh, as needed. AWS does have some tools, too, to handle, like, CVE actions. Um, so this is if you're not using immutable infrastructure. They have a system manager, which will go through and let you um, patch your systems through a very nice automated method. Um, and so you can have it, you know, create profiles and documents that go through um, and patch the systems. Again, this works the same way that Parameter Store works, where IAM controls all of the access to this. So you can do two-party type creation of those documents, make sure you understand what's going into those. And then limiting which instances can talk to which things, storing secrets in the parameter store so that you can leverage those later. We can also leverage AWS Inspector to scan our account. And what's nice is, again, like I've said a few times now, is there's an event stream that we can subscribe to that we can trigger system manager calls out of. So we can actually use Inspector to trigger our auto updates to patch our system. If you're running immutable infrastructure, the system manager one's probably not as important to you, uh, but Inspector can trigger a roll of all your instances if you're running immutable um, and bring on new patched up-to-date instances so that you're protected there. And so again, these two tools are here and available um, for people to run and really protect their systems and be more proactive. So as Terry's scanning the environment, trying to find those CVEs and those exploits, we have something in the background running the whole time, scanning and protecting our own assets in order to make sure that Terry can't get the data off. The other problem we ran into is 
protecting external facing resources, right? So Terry was able to exploit WordPress, which is a fun one to exploit. So there's a whole suite of tools and some cool things here that we can do that's actually very straightforward and very simple. So here we get CloudFront. This is kind of the core of what we have running here. And CloudFront is Amazon's CDN. And in front of CloudFront sits Shield, so we get some DDoS protection so that someone can't just DDoS the account, cause overflows or weird things to happen. But we can also tack on WAF, the Web Application Firewall. So we can protect against those SQL injections, cross-site scripting actions. We can auto-block any type of nefarious IP address that exists. These are auto-updating blacklists. We can create our own blacklists so that IPs that are hitting our system at rates that are not acceptable, they can get auto-blacklisted for permanent or set amount of time, and we can turn those on. And so that provides a nice layer of uh, separation. It also separates your infrastructure from the internet because this is all handled through secure networking on Amazon's side. And so people aren't actually hitting directly to your infrastructure. They're going through some layers, some proxy layers. The other tool that people don't tend to think about, and really we didn't think about until we were diving more in this, is ELB. ELB is actually a fairly decent security tool. It provides a layer of separation. It only does one thing. It just load balances the traffic coming in. And only load balances the traffic that you want coming in. And so leveraging ELB to protect your infrastructure also you know, adds that extra layer of separation between your infrastructure and the public internet. And so that's, a, that's an easy tool to use also. So now network architecture. Okay, and so the other thing that we saw is Terry had the ability to pivot pretty badly within our setup. And so we have some network architecture guidelines that we didn't follow. You know, we have the, you know, your traditional three-tier architecture model where you're really trying to protect your database layers so that your front-end layers aren't ever talking to them directly. We also like to, in a, this type of architecture, really limit the access between those layers, whether that be knackles or security groups or firewall rules of some sort so that things are only talking to what they need to talk to. And then finally, we need to probably limit outbound traffic so that things that don't need to talk to the internet don't talk to the internet. I mean, it's not needed. Um, and so we can protect things there. So here's a picture of our original architecture. We had wide open knuckles, way wide open knuckles. I mean, as you saw, there was just zeros all over the place, right? Security groups. I mean, I set it up not like pretending like I didn't know networking. So I just whitelisted what was easy which is my VPC subnet, right? That should be safe, that's my network, right? And so we were able to see the security groups allowed the whole full VPC CIDR. Out of that, there was a lot of a lateral transition and a lot of movement that was able to take place. She was able to go from services that I thought were only talking to each other to services I didn't know could talk to each other by taking the WordPress site directly to the database. So this is not a good architecture. It's pretty wide open and you know, fairly um, easy to get around. We also let all outbound traffic, so I wasn't protecting anything going out, right? I was letting it all come out of the network and not doing anything. So we can go to a better architecture, though, and really try to fit into this three-layer network architecture. So we're to say three-layer, but we all know WordPress doesn't really fit a three-layer architecture very well because it's presentation and application in the same layer. But we can still kind of fit it in here and protect things. So here what we've done is set up three distinct subnets and had very strong knuckles between all of them. And in that case, the front-end subnet, the first subnet, was only allowed to talk to the second one, and vice versa. 
The second subnet was only allowed to talk to the database layer and the front end layer. And then our database layer was only allowing traffic inbound to it from the application layer, the middle layer here. We also cleaned up our security groups. So as opposed to just allowing all traffic from the VPC, we trusted only traffic from specific security groups. And so our RDS database for WordPress only allowed traffic from the WordPress security group. That was the only thing that could take place there. Our RDS database, the super secret DB, only allowed traffic from the Lambda security group. So the WordPress site was no longer able to access directly to the super secret DB. We had knuckles in place protecting it. We had security groups in place protecting it to make sure things couldn't get back there. And so we were able to really limit the amount of pivoting that could take place in the account. The other thing we've done is we blocked internet. So a lot of the Amazon resources don't need internet because uh, all of the loading and all the stuff happens behind the scenes in Amazon's infrastructure. Lambdas in the subnet don't need internet access. RDS databases don't need internet access. So we cut off internet access to a lot of those resources so that they're not able to exfil data directly and really minimize and lock it down. And now if we turn on VPC flow logs, we should see things only behaving this way. We can then monitor those, react to those, and say, okay, these things are talking, they shouldn't be talking, and be able to respond pretty quickly to those types of incidents. All right, so what have we shown you today? We have shown you that attackers can use the same tools that your DevOps teams are using. Those are very powerful tools, and they allow you to do a lot of really cool things. If attackers can get your credentials, they can do those cool things too. The cloud APIs can really help you map out what is in the account and what you can attack and how it's configured, and that information is very useful for attackers who's trying to figure out how they can get at your data and how they can get at your systems. Then we showed you that read-only access seems innocuous, right? But it can be very powerful. It can give me a lot of information as to how I can attack your account. And then finally, uh, wide-open networks are a very powerful tool for an attacker. Um, they make it very easy to traverse the network and to jump from one system to another called pivoting. And so showed you how you can do some of that if the network is misconfigured. Then from the blue team perspective, restrict access, minimize the amount of stuff people can get to and have those locked down you know, to the bare minimum amount of roles. Automate the deployments. We talked about a lot of auto remediation. The more you run automation, the less likely you're gonna introduce some type of human error or drift into the config. And if it's all automated, you can just keep running it over and over and over again to make sure your configuration stays the same. Architect your networks to minimize open ports um, for pivoting. So make sure that things can only talk to things that you want them to talk to. We're not able to cross boundaries where we don't want boundaries crossed. Protect your secrets. Don't embed them in code. Just because I stored that Lambda function in an encrypted S3 bucket with a KMS key that I managed, you know, Lambda creates a link that's good for a certain amount of time. Protect your secrets, don't put them there. There's tools available. It's not difficult to start implementing and leveraging those tools to pull those secrets out securely, okay? And then monitor everything. Amazon has a ton of monitoring tools built into it, a ton of event-driven ability with the event streams that you can subscribe to and then auto-remediate a lot of those actions. And so monitor everything and make sure it's all there. So we just both want to thank you all for coming to our talk. 
Uh, you can reach Terry on Twitter at Terry Ridicle or me at Colby Allen. Um, we're here to answer any questions that you guys have, and uh, thank you again. <laughs>